Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Yeah, Tom Balbo. <laughs> and now we go back. We, I met you probably 13, 14 years ago through the Morgan Conservatory, which you helped to create. Right. Tell us, so tell us a little bit about the Morgan. Well, the Morgan I set up and thought it was kind of organic in nature in the terms of, oh, I can do this and had no idea about a nonprofit, what you do with a nonprofit and all that. And so I initially found a building and I wanted it to be sort of based on the, what I had been part of for years. And that was a paper and book intensive, which works with all the papermaking, book arts, letterpress printing, that kind of thing, and printing as well. I wanted to have that kind of thing in Cleveland under, under one roof and kind of give back to the community because I've been I had a, a nice career of selling work through galleries through the years. So I was able to do art, you know, full time. And the people I met through the years at this organization and, and at other conferences and things like that were just a great group of people that I thought, you know, let's give back or do something. And I have a tool fetish on top of everything else. So gathering equipment and all that stuff is one of those <laughs> things that at least I put that to work. So so back in, uh, I guess, 07, started writing up the IRS uh, nonprofit status thing for a 501c3 and sort of got off the ground. And it was my first introduction into nonprofit other than donating artwork to nonprofits. It was my first on the other side of it, running it and seeing how it develops and runs. And, and then ultimately, you get a board and that board helps to guide it. And I was also, you know, we all were volunteers at that time in the first couple of years that brought it up. And then we were able to get some uh, funding from a, a large donor, Mr. Morgan. And, uh, and then we started over the years, write grants and things like that. The Morgan itself is set up on the, for me, really the intent is to push the craft and make the craft alive in the sense of, you know, traditional and new experiences in using papermaking, which I'm much more familiar with. I've also been familiar with printing and some letterpress. I've been familiar with doing some structures and books and things like that. So I wanted all that kind of to go on under one roof and then to bring talented people in for that, that can both instruct or artists in residence that can come in and and then also interns and try and get the youth involved, you know, the people coming up, because I'm of a certain generation that a lot of the participants in our workshops are generally in the 50 and over demographic. And thinking about this with Maggie Denk, who's still head of printmaking at the Cleveland Institute of Art, and she's been our executive director of the board uh, almost since the inception of it. But she also wanted to try and get a place where students can come to, especially after graduating from art schools, where they can have access to equipment and, and minds and techniques and things like that that are not readily available all that much. Uh, people come out of schools and find out, oh, I don't have a studio space anymore. I, I don't have access to this. And, and a lot of times, you know, people end up drifting off uh, the potential they might have had goes away. So that was another reason and a big reason. And it's one of the greatest things that I feel the Morgan has accomplished is having, you know, up to 14 to 20 interns in the course of a year that come through all unpaid as a rule. Occasionally we get some funding, you know, through organizations to have paid interns, but overall it's been a volunteer and just been great to see the change in, in the way they come in and, and leave. And then also we've hired from a number of uh, interns and a few volunteers. We've hired staff over the years from that pool and uh, it's worked out wonderfully. And it's always sad to see those folks go after you get used to working with them at the Morgan and uh, 
but they've gone on to grad schools. They've gone on to great positions in other places. So, so I love the Morgan so much. And I don't know if you've noticed in, in our previous podcasts that I've done, I've actually mentioned the Morgan a number of times to a number of different oh, really? people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I link to you all on social media, like, because the place, the, just the physical space is amazing. Like, I don't even know how you got this insanely huge warehouse mm -hmm. to be, I mean, Okay, how did you do that? Because you were a startup 501c3 with yeah. no no background, no track record, and you got this amazingly massive, beautiful location. How did you even get that? Well, I wanted something when I first got the idea, I wanted something and looked around at buildings on the from about the uh, Cuyahoga River east to where my studio, which is a block away, from the Morgan located somewhere in that area and or to University Circle. And I looked around, looked around, and and this just happened to be really literally a block away from my studio, which makes it even more convenient, not only for me, but for folks coming and going to the Morgan. So somehow I just was looked in the windows on the side and thought this big empty white space could work really well. So it, like everything else has issues, but I took a big chance and uh, I used all my savings to uh, initially purchase it until we had the endowment money, which came a few years later after the passing of Mr. Charles Morgan, who it's dedicated to and named in his honor. So finding it, I mean, and I went with like, I just do things both spontaneously and just don't think about it, you know, to dwell on it. Because maybe after after the first year and a half of being in that building with a few people helping to clean it up and point and paying people to do this and that and feeling like, who's ever going to come to this place? You know, it was, and, there, and it happened on, in 08, in October, when we had our first kind of quick open house. And it was, just blew me away to have such a community come and, and support it. It was really a wonderful moment in my life to see that I could actually get people in that area because it's off the beaten track. It's not on a main drive. Okay. So let's just make it clear for the listeners who may have never heard of the Morgan Conservatory. Sure. So from my knowledge, so, and please fill in any of my gaps. Right. So you, you all have a gallery where you focus on paper right. product, product, uh, manipulative, basically paper as a medium, itself as well as things on paper then you also you have letter presses you have a paper making facilities and then you also basically just had this huge open space because what i remember back then was is that a lot of the people were using paper as a sculptural medium and so right. therefore there was there was just lots of space to build things with paper in a, in a more three-dimensional manner um and then I was there when you planted your first mulberry tree. Okay. So, so that's that's my timeline on that. So mm -hmm. how has it changed or grown over the years? Well, we've uh, added uh, a bindery. We have an in, inside bindery for the book arts, which is a self-contained space. We've added a, a beta room, which is quiets the noise on the outside and also keeps it contained. Um, because Hollander beaters for papermaking are pretty loud. We're able to, to do both Eastern and Western styles of papermaking. So we've added a lot of equipment, such as a Hanji vat, which is a Korean, traditional Korean vat, and all the tools, the molds, the decals, the sagettas, the things like that. And then speaking of the garden, it's become a, a great forest now of trees. It's probably a stand of small, maybe 150 to 200 trees. And we just got done this week cutting down the Kozo trees and we're steaming them and stripping them. So this is all slowly grown bigger and bigger. And we've acquired a few more uh, lots of land around us to expand the gallery, or excuse me, the garden. and. It's been a, a great highlight. People love to come through and, and they see this in this midst of the industrial 
buildings everywhere, you see this kind of odd oasis. So that's been added probably, I mean, you haven't seen it in a few years, so it's it's pretty remarkable. Art Lab, it's what the space you're talking about, is still functioning and it, we do all kinds of things there. We do marbling, we do you know classes, we move this, we move that, tables, we have occasionally have our benefit functions. And so things are always tetrad around and even a truck is brought in sometimes to house some of the tables and things like that when we have uh, fundraising events or audiences. So it's been a, a big change. And the, we've also, just in terms of our gallery, we've expanded to uh, do a, a what was originally a regional juried show is now an, a national juried show that we put on once a year. In fact, that's up right now in the gallery. So all these things are, you know, we've done improvements in our front end as well. We've put in a, a conference room and a kitchen, a real kitchen that wasn't there when you were there. So it's grown and so has the, you know, the staffing has grown. I think we're up to seven folks, uh, pretty much almost full time. Okay. I want to take it back a step. I mean, don't, and I don't mean this in any sort of negative way, but why paper? So like your background and then sort of even the, the, con, right. the, Mor the Morgan itself. So like part of that would be why did Mr. Morgan choose to sort of, you know, become the endowment for it as well? So like, right. you know, how did you find paper and why did you find it? And then why did, you know, Mr. Morgan then come in and why do you think it's something to sort of continue on with? Well, originally I was a graduate school and I was a print and ceramics major in the graduate program and had a fellowship at Syracuse. There they had the School of Forestry that had a small area. They were allowed the printmaking department to take a few grad students and start making paper. I had no clue as to what paper was about or how to make it. So from there, I took it back and uh, actually uh, started working both with and without a connection to bisqueware and casting off of ceramic pieces with paper, but also doing flat kind of painterly things with paper. So as I brought that back and, and started my own artist practice, I guess you'd say freelancing, I went back to Cleveland and just developed more and more my paper techniques, both in sculptural as well as production levels and, and different fibers. And then starting to the with Mr. Morgan, he just happened to be a, a, a good friend that used to go on a few trips here and there with him and a few other folks. And ultimately, he was a collector of prints primarily and some paintings. And at some point, I actually helped to become a caregiver for him to some degree because he lived across the street from where I lived in Cleveland. And before you knew it, you know, I did more and more caregiving and Ultimately, he said, whatever you can set up or do, and I had no what I was going to do, you know, we'll go ahead. So I set up a, thought this is a great thing to set up or try. So, and it worked, you know, it worked out. God bless his soul. For, and I, we even got him down there. He was 98 and a half years old when he passed away. But I think there's a, a small little film of Mr. Morgan at 97 or 96 pulling some paper and we brought him down in his wheelchair and he attended our first benefit and was piped in by my brother-in-law. It was just fabulous to see, you know, the joy he had in just seeing this place. So. Now, currently you also have residencies and you offer classes and you have open studios. I'm sort of interested in the residencies. So like what kind of residencies are these? Short-term, long-term? Do people have to be like paper makers to get it? Or can people say, hey, I want, I'm generally a painter, but I want to do a project in, in yeah. paper. Like so how do people apply for this? There's no restriction on where you come from. We've had photographers, we've had painters, printers, printmakers. We've had just, you know, people doing film with paper and that kind of stuff. So the program's gotten more involved and it's another one of the programs I'm most fond of because I also myself get to work with a lot of different people artistically. So that really, you know, enhances my 
dedication to this as well. And we also have interns that will periodically work with the residents as they're there. The time limits is generally no more than two to three months. Most of them are two weeks residencies. And we were able to get some funding from the Wingate Foundation to help defray some of their costs. So that, that has really helped as well. And we've had international, we had scheduled two folks from Chile and one from Australia to come in this last year before COVID hit, as well as about eight other people across the country. So we usually in the long term have anywhere from eight to 12 artists and residents through the course of the year and try and schedule them across so that they're, sometimes they overlap, but also that there's time when they're the only artists and residents there. So we do that kind of scheduling. I'm real proud of some of the achievements that the people have made and uh, some of the friendships I've made from the artists coming in. The program I hope continues. I mean, we hopefully we can start up maybe sometime in the spring, depending on obviously where COVID is. So, but I'm at a point where, you know, as long as we social distance and, you know, it's one person or two people at a time and no one else around, then, you know, it could still work this year. Well, one thing I always wonder, you've got this amazing place and it's also an open studio. So like right. anybody who's either a member or a not member can come in and do hourly things. I used to run a nonprofit that was a community dark room right. in mm-hmm. the same basic sensibility and and I failed at it miserably. Um, maybe it was, you know, photography was on its way to digital. And right. Maybe I just poorly ran my nonprofit. I don't know. But, you know, so like how... Do people really love that part of it, uh, being able to have those resources once they get out of school or even those resources because they can't, don't want to go to school, but they still want to work with letterpress or paper making or any of these things? Yeah, that has worked really well too. And, and actually I'd love to have even more people utilize the studios, but we, we have open studios in all, all areas of uh, the paper studio, the book, bindery studio and the printmaking studio. And it has, you know, we have people coming in to do projects, you know, specific, you know, people in the area or they've come in through town and can they utilize it? So, you know, that's been a great facility and you have all this equipment and I love it to be even utilized more. And we're also doing a lot of, which I should mention, we're doing a lot of production, paper making production as well as part of our purpose and, and our, and we're producing some beautiful papers, uh, but we also have, you know, have to have studio time to do that. You know, we're constantly moving this, moving that, getting the studio time in to, to produce papers, produce Asian papers during the cooler months, Western papers through the whole year. And we've had a lot more commissions. So we're, I've got some great paper makers that are, that I've trained and they've become solid paper making citizens as i call them so or morganites okay now what one of the big things we all wonder about is with nonprofits is like how do they keep their funding going so right. like so i'm sure you get grants you have you seem to have an endowment as well you sell paper you also have a gallery i would assume you sell through right. the gallery so like what are the sort of like you know, it's one of those things like I, I sat here and just told you that I have a failed 501c3. So it's like, how, what are you doing to making it, make it work? And also what are some of the difficulties that you didn't expect that you were yeah. like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it progresses and, you know, from, from a, all volunteers staff at one point to a few volunteers to people putting in time and then slowly you're starting to pay more people you know, I've had good board members that are much more realistic and sensible than I am and expect less from people or not, not so much less, but, you know, I, you, you would hope that everybody would be so thrilled about this or that, but, you know, keeping people on, keeping the doors open, you know, we ultimately got to a point maybe five years ago of hiring someone for development, you know, just as a development person to just writing grants is, not an easy thing. And it's a language that, you know, only a few people 
can really focus on. Most folks that come through our doors aren't grant writers and nor should it be expected. So that's been a, a big challenge, but we've managed and we're getting more and more. And I think the more you seem to get uh, grants, because we like we just got an NEA grant for two artists last year. So that was a big milestone for us. But it's also, you know, you also go through more and more policies, more and more procedures, more and more meetings and staff meetings and board meetings and, you know, trials, tribulations. So it's very exhausting in a lot of ways. I mean, I've, I'm at it now, I think, going on since the middle of 06, kind of getting the conception to, to now. So I'm at it 15 so years. And, you know, it's like, whoa, why did I do this? <laughs> you know, it's... I could have just been in my little studio, uh, you know, doing my artwork. And, and so, it, you know, there are times when you're just so warmed and wonderful and people love coming in the place. And there are other times you're just like, oh, my God, so much work. And Oh, I remember the, the, the one big one that I sort of maybe didn't think of in advance was like OSHA and safety regulations and all because, you know when I was in school, the school did all that. I didn't even pay attention to it. And yeah. you know, when I was in my own studio, it was irrelevant. But as soon as you start engaging with the public, right. there are so many rules and regulations that you oh, have no idea. <laughs> yeah, those things are, are, they're not insurmountable, but they do happen a lot. So, And they're expensive to either A, install or B, maintain, because right. like, not only do you have to put it there, but you have to keep it functional as well. Right. When I look at some of the Hollander, the beaters themselves, you know, they're <laughs> they're old world. You know, they're they're not the new new beaters that have all the safety features on them. But uh, you know, we've worked it, and and we have policies or you know things that keep people safe as much as possible. And now with COVID, you're even doing more of that, and you wonder, oh my God, is it worth it? You know, is it worth all the staff time to? disinfect to do this and that or can you afford it you know can you afford the hours that go into that and i don't know how anybody's doing it out there but they're doing it you know getting when you think of a school and classrooms and what they have to do to clean and you know we're on a sm much smaller basis and you understand that from your own perspective of starting your own photo studio and obviously i'm sure you somebody said oh you've got to have the right ventilation you've got to have this you've got to have I'm so happy to not have a dark room be at the, during COVID because the ventilation would have just, nobody would have gone, gone into there ever. Right. I wouldn't want to go in there. Right. So, did, did you ever build your dark room? You, when I left, you were still trying to, we trying were try to build it. Yeah, we were trying to do it and we've manipulated some areas and built them like that, like doing cyanotype, you know, where you could coat or coating silk screen and that kind of stuff. But we never kind of dedicated a specific spot. And we also, I don't know if you're aware of the print room in Cleveland. You should check it out because Sherry Wilkins started something like you you might have started, which is both old world, new world photography. So the, it's called the print room and it's uh, not far from 26, um, East 26th and Superior. Check them out, the print room. You know, you have that accessibility and then we work, we partner a little bit with Zygo Press and they, for the amount of darkroom we needed, you know, and I had a lot of equipment, but it, you know, that was donated in that, but, you know, there's just so many things you, you don't want to get so sidetracked with doing it all. So we gave up. A, it's fine. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. No, it's cyanotypes and alternative processes, I think are perfectly appropriate for the Morgan. Yeah. Okay. I did my master's thesis with a letterpress, so I'm a huge advocate oh, really? oh, wow. of letterpress. So mm -hmm. how is uh, how is the interest in letterpress these days? Do people are people waxing or waning? Like what's going on with that? I think they're at least in Cleveland area they're waning. Although there's always some few incredible folks you find that are so turned on. But it's been one of the biggest struggles that I can't understand is we have. We now have three Vandercooks. We have a few, uh, three poster presses, which work great for instruction. We have a Heidelberg that we just got rolling, getting up and going. It's been sitting there kind of idle. And then all the, I constantly got get more and more type in, and especially wood type and 
cuts and all those types of things. And I just wish it would be utilized more. But there are people, more and more people doing open studio occasionally with that, the letterpress. So I love it myself. I love doing it. I don't do enough of it, but I love the, the facility. And I actually have a, in my own studio, I have letterpress equipment and, and things that I share, especially with artists in residence. If they are staying with me in my studio space, then they have access to all my floors of both printmaking, papermaking, and, and some book binding, things like that. All right. So you also have classes because I actually remember bringing some of my students over for a class, I believe with you even, I think, because I think we did denim uh, paper is what right. we, we worked with. But, you know, what kind of classes are people interested in these days? Is it is it primarily like intro level or are people going for the more advanced levels? Uh, it hits both ways, but we try and make the advanced levels available to most People. So there's kind of, you know, different levels of people uh, taking, you know, it might be somebody's knows that, you know, we'll be doing a, say, a pulp painting class. Some people have done it, you know, a number of times. So they, they're great because they get going and all the stuff is mixed and ready to go. The, the area is ready where the intro people you can work with and get them, you know, pulling paper, doing something of that nature. Letterpress as well is kind of... Uh, We've had interest, but the letterpress, again, has been probably the weakest sign-up that we get, which I can't understand, you know, five, six people maybe, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me with what's accessible. We do, you know, we, we've done pressure printing, we've done typesetting, and poster, you know, or broadside, that kind of thing with the letterpress. And and then in, in book, I think the book and paper have been the most successful, book binding classes, various structures, and even we've done gold gold tooling. We've done a number of things, avant-garde, not avant-garde structures, but what I would call new structures as well as old world structures and that kind of thing. So those two, the paper and book, seem to be doing much better at this point. But it always switches. Sometimes you'd be like, oh, all of a sudden these classes are going great and some of the other classes aren't. We have a full summer, what I would call spring through early fall, which is our major workshop time. And then we, through the school year, we have lots of programs for uh, either going to, you know, from K through 12, going to schools, even, and then a lot of high schools will, a lot of times we bring them in, some of the high school classes, art classes or whatever, we bring those through the year and and then we're trying to do more community outreach in our in the Cleveland area and work with um, the CMSD kids, the municipal school kids, which are the most disadvantaged. And uh, we have a perfect person, which I don't know if you ever met Claudia Orso. Mm, not by name. No, a fabulous outreach person in the hood, as I say, because he just gets it and he works with all kinds of kids and uh, he's was just an artist in residence as well, but he's, he does a lot of woodblock, but he he loves to take paper to the kids. He loves to take printmaking to the kids, and he's he's a great resource for us. So during the winter, we've also started some programming with usually one to two-day workshops, and those have worked out fairly well. But there are also other months that we don't do any scheduled stuff, or we do a pop-up if, if it's possible you know somebody says i've got 12 marblers let's bring in somebody to teach the marbling class that kind of thing so. well okay let's flip that around a little bit so let's say i'm a person listening to this podcast and i either would like to work with paper or i am a paper maker and i want to offer classes but i don't have my own place can they call you or contact you and sort of arrange to do workshops with you or classes through at your facility yeah that's that happens quite a bit Generally, there is some kind of structure. They're in schools of some nature or organizations that can bring in or, you know, even garden groups have come in, that kind of thing, you know, all over the board to work with paper and, and get a connection maybe between what's grown and what's coming into the paper studio, that kind of thing. We welcome it and we work with a 
decent amount of pricing so that we can make it affordable, but also, you know, the, the Morgan can basically pay their staff, pay for the facility use. Because that's the other thing is we have an abundance of great equipment at the Morgan and it's not cheap and it's not cheap to operate and run and repair and that, but, but it's also a lot of stuff you can't regular artist individual one doesn't have the space and, and two probably the money to you know just have your own paper studio and your own like a letterpress studio you know you you know from working with letterpress the weight the equipment's not light and and it's bulky you can't put it on the second floor or third floor of any building it has to be right. on a concrete slab for sure right like i said before with the uh, being involved with the mechanical parts of it. And I love the technical parts of machines and tools and the way they operate, as well as going to the other extreme of, wow, I can utilize this for doing art, you know, this, this machine to that machine, to this tool, to that tool. And then boom, I can, I can either do production paper making, or I can do some, you know, really painterly pieces, or I can make some sculpture from this uh, fiber or from, you know, make a book from letterpress and, and binding structures and make the paper, make the whole. Okay. Well, I've got a question about that, which is the, so I, I remember when I was there, I bought some paper that you all made some, I, I think what you're calling your production papers right. that are available for people to purchase. Sure. I would imagine that that's very difficult to sell like specifically i'm thinking sell online because like every single sheet is so unique that yeah. like I, I remember going through a stack of like 10 sheets and being like this one is beautiful but i right. don't like the other nine kind of thing right. so like have you found been able to find some way to try and make it easier for that to happen i'm always you know of the same opinion that i'd rather touch it and see it and feel it but we, we've just redone our online store and we're getting more and more people that have seen our, and it's usually people that have seen the paper somewhere and, and trust it. And then we send samples out, but our online store has just been revamped. And I think it's helping with sales, especially in these times. And, and it also reaches a larger audience. And then I, when I've attended conferences, I'll take a variety of papers and sell in their kind of vendors area book people, print people, and those have worked out really well. And it kind of, and we've had a lot of commissions from uh, especially letterpress and book artists uh, across the country and outside the country for specific runs of paper. And, you know, you're selling 60 to 500 sheets at a time, which is great. And we've gotten our, I think our production levels are, you know, we're getting a, a similar weight down pretty well, similar, you know, say you're ordered a, a red paper with a, an abaca with a translucency, you know, we've pretty consistent and more and more consistent uh, with that product as well. But the beauty of handmade paper is, you know, that it does have a unique quality to it that your machine grade paper doesn't have. So. I know I'm a snob for good papers myself. Well, well, anybody I think involved in printmaking and I came out, you know, of the printmaking world and say, when I was able to make paper, all kinds of paper and print on it, I, when I get going in a print, I, I have hundreds of sheets of paper to select from and just can pull and just, you know, or before when I was in school, you know, oh, this paper's, you know, four or $5. And that was back in the eighties, you know, you're like in the seventies, you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, I gotta be very cautious about using that paper. So, oh, wait, so, okay. So you're saying that your papers are, let's call it like less expensive or more affordable than the traditional. No, um, no, I'm not saying that. Um, oh, okay. Darn. I'm just, I, I wish, I wish I we hoping. could. No, we're, uh, in fact, they're probably a little more expensive than like buying a Swarthmore or, uh, you know, somebody's papers, but you know, they have obviously, especially our Asian papers. When you, we, when you consider the time that goes into growing the Kozo, or <laughs> Our steaming, our stripping, our then cooking, then beating, then picking the specks out. If you want a clean paper, it's it's not that's. But I but what I'm saying is just in my own mind as an early printmaker and buying. You know, you knew that paper was good. Paper was not cheap even then. And for my own personal use, it's like wow. I 
that's the one benefit. I have <laughs> a lot of free paper myself because I make it, you know, I can, not free, but I, I have the facility myself to make my own stuff and the Morgan, you know, can utilize that. But no, the papers I wish, but they also go to a great cause, you know, that's, it's, it's like buying local or whatever you want to call it, but you're, you're seeing something sustainable and there's fewer and far between places that are doing handmade paper, especially as you go to Asia, you know, in Japan, you know, and Korea and places like that, the traditional paper makers are becoming a scarcity. So then what's the future for the Morgan? Like, I guess there's sort of two sides, like what do you already have planned for the future? And then mm -hmm. what do you hope for the future? Well, my personal hope is that we, we continue with all the t techniques and, and really get a, a wide range of papers made that were also a house that, that actually is like, this is a, a craft and this is, we're sustaining this craft. There's only a few places around the world that have all this stuff available to make it and could show you from start to finish how paper's made. And that's one of my intents is to keep a craft alive, to keep the craft of letterpress and the old machines and to show the connection to the digital age is still there, the touch, the feel, you know, there's lots of connections and same with the book, book binding and those types of what we call the old sports, as you say. And I see it when I see younger folks that are real facile on computers and language of the computer, how much they still respond to the touch. And I think we're in this day and age of COVID, we're, we're seeing that a lot because, you know, everyone's been zooming and Google chroming and doing all that stuff that to the point where you're like, God, I want to, I'm going to just go out and, you know, talk to somebody and do something physical. So, you know, I, I'm hoping that that's what the Morgan continues to be. And I, I'm sure it'll change in iterations and things like that. Uh, we're fortunate that we own our building and we we're not subject to that aspect, although it, it's, it's the other side of the coin of having to maintain <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, that's a huge, expensive building to maintain. I remember yeah. going there one time in winter and it was <laughs> so cold. Oh, yeah. And it's still, some parts are, and we've at least zoned off about three or four different areas and put in separate heating systems, like in the print area and in the paper studio that when you're in there, you, you know, you're not freezing. But ultimately, it's, you know, had I more time to really get into it, I, I would have maybe thought about it a little more, but it is a funky place, you know, and it has a funky character to it and which gives it a, its own life. And, you know, like you said, you, your mindset changes when you walk in the door. Cause it's like, what is this crazy place? So. It is, it's magnificent. I thoroughly enjoy it. I wish I could have a reason to go back, but well, I don't. You always are invited back or, or apply for a residency and, We'll get you there, you know. No, well, okay. Well, within the residency, so it, uh, to describe the residency as far as because, okay, I have this thing about residencies. I love residencies, but I don't love the ones that basically I end up having to pay for everything. So, right. so like, what, how, what's the the amount of sort of uh, honorarium or financial assistance or anything like? Yeah, this it's 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 there? about uh, two to three hundred a week for most of our artists, and that. They can use that toward hopefully housing and, and some materials. We allow 24-7 access to the studios and that type of thing. So we just we just don't have enough funding to pay for it all. And we're hoping to get to that point with you know the grant writing and things like that as we come out of this period of time. That's what I'm hoping to so that we can bump it up. And we only have a certain amount of money that we can utilize. So Initially, we had, I think, the first year that we got the funding, which is, this is our third third year of funding. We only gave, I think, about, well, we had 14 artists, so we distributed all the money between that, so it became two to $300. This year, we had a little bit more to give to artists because we cut it back to about eight, eight or nine people. And I think we'll stick with about between eight and 10 people and then some of the, like the local people get less than the people. Like if you're coming in, we try and help with defray your 
travel costs and all that. And hopefully down the road, the residency pays for all of that. Because I know there are lots of residencies where you pay a ton of money for for great facilities, but it, you know, they're I see it from both ends because I know what it costs to do all this stuff. I've seen residencies where you pay a bunch of money and all you get is a, an apartment, but no actual resources. You're, you're just in a place around other people and that's all. So uh, it, it's it, the residency, you know, premise is amazing. You know, I mean, giving right. artists time and space and, right. and opportunities and resources is fabulous. But sometimes like there is that balance that you like, you don't want it to cost you money to go do this also. Right. Oh, sure. No, and I, I'm, we're well aware of that, and we're well aware um, trying to keep the demographic as well when we jury, because we, I think we have roughly anywhere from 30 to 40 people applying for the residencies each year. and That's all. Yeah, to review. So we're reviewing all that to knock it down. And, and there are some great proposals, but some of the proposals were like, well, we can't do that, and we can't afford to pay you for 20 weeks to come in and, you know, <laughs> and do gold not, leafing and all right, that yeah, kind of expensive yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 So those are, you know, any place has to do that. You have to jury in people. And for me, it's, it's, I, I've had some great times working with artists, you know, for me, I, you know, I can take my skill sets and work with them and their skill sets and, you know, come up with some creative, really wonderful projects. Okay. Grant writing and grants in general. I love them. They're amazing, but, but they can be so difficult to understand, write. And then one of the things a lot of people don't understand is, is like you put all this time and effort into writing a grant and then a, you either get it or you don't. Don't. Yeah. But then even after that, if you do get it, there's exponentially more work in the reporting and the meeting the criteria and you know, culminating all the, the, the spreadsheets of, of prices and costs and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's sometimes they're not worth the amount of work that you put into them because you end up paying a full-time staff person to basically do all that work. So sometimes they can be quite ridiculous. So like when you're looking for grants, cause like, I'm thinking like you're a pretty well-established organization at this point, like how do you choose where to even apply for? And then like, what kind of grants do you seek? We have two great funders, the Gund and the, actually three in Cleveland, the uh, Cuyahoga Arts Council, Gund and the Cleveland Foundation have been main contributors to our general operating as well as special projects. And the more you kind of work with them, the more they're kind of come in and they advise you. So it takes some of the, the stress off of that, or you know that, you know, if you apply for this, you're not confident, but you're pretty, con- you know, pretty sure that, you know, they want you to succeed as well. And it put, puts both of us in the right light. But it's a major, I, I agree that, and the more and more it's reporting, the tracking, the, you know, you have as much or more on the back end of a grant than you do on writing the grant. And, and writing the grant is not easy either. No. There's so many... The the yeah. other thing that I've noticed a lot with grants is I feel like they're getting more finite. Like right. in the old days, it was like, we just want to support you. Right. Done. Now it's, we want to support you if you're doing something ecological or right. environmentally this, or like the, 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 the criteria for them are becoming right. much more difficult to meet. Right. And it's, it is a sign of the times. And I don't know if it's because there's a, the IRS and everybody else has gotten more and more. Or, I mean, it's, it's part of our, our statistics are kind of whatever they call those things that the great tech companies use to figure out what you're doing and all that. The uh, Yeah. I mean, it's return on investment kind of stuff. Right. And, uh, yeah. It's just crazy. And, and all that has trickled down to, you know, the grant people wanting more and more. Uh, and, and then you have to tighten up your language on the grants. You have, you know. 25 characters or say say 500 characters to, to get your your thing across so drives me insane especially when they do the characters because i like using big words so right. like i would if it said 25 words i'm better with that than 25 characters but yeah i know it's, i think that's what they usually 
It's it's one of the hardest things about keeping a nonprofit alive, regardless of whether you have some endowment money or not. But it's figuring out the the grant writing, and we had a super woman doing our grant writing for the last two years, um, who left in December of this last year. But she was she just was one of those people that was sought after, and you know you can only afford so much, and then other organizations want that person. So it's also, you know, it's a, it would be the place to go if you're, if you like that kind of work. I mean, grant writing is definitely a, a career that you could, you know, foster the, anywhere. But yeah, it's, it's one of the hardest things for me to deal with. And I'm glad that other people are doing it at the Morgan. I'm glad that I had the, the big idea to get it going. And, and then I get to do the artistics part of it. I don't have to do the office load of managing the staff and you know we have an executive director for that and and people have pretty much their job things the other thing that's frustrating is also the uh, one thing that sort of bothers me is the generation coming up and the the lack of volunteerism that is coming out it's really yeah i mean i just it's not only the lack of volunteer it's also the utilization of the facility itself, like my staff could be utilizing it much better as artists themselves. Most of them are doing artist artwork themselves. And it's, it's just odd. I guess I grew up in a time when, you know, we snuck into the studios late at night. We did all that kind of stuff. And, you know, this, this was a wealth to have all this time and, and be able to, to do it. And I don't see that as, and I, I mean, you see it occasionally, but you know, as a, Overall, and the, the generations coming up, I, I wish I could see more of that and, and more just kind of like volunteering. I mean, you have the interns volunteering, but I'm saying just in general, like to get staff to just do this or that without a job description. <laughs> you know, those things are. The last time I had the resources like what you offer available to me, I literally slept at the place so that I could work until I was utterly exhausted and start working again at the moment I woke up. Like it was amazing. So I don't understand what you're talking about. That's not me. Yeah, I know. I understand. And that's how I was and, and, and still am. I mean, if I, when I go to a, uh, a place where there are workshops to do myself. I mean, I'm there. <laughs> I'm up late at night. Don't know how you function for those week and a half or two, but you do. And you just are like, you know, that it's the vibe, it's the energy and the levels that, you know, are around that you just can take advantage of. So. Yeah. Okay. What about like the internet? Because you mentioned stuff about social medias and the website right. and things like this. Like, do you all use it? Do you use it? Do you think to your best ability? Could you use it better? Where do you, what's your, or, or is it doing marvelously for you? So yeah. like, what, you know, where do you fall on that spectrum? I've seen it develop from when we had somebody doing our website and we've changed people doing our websites to from volunteer to paying people to, you know, having to be on social media more and more. And I mean, it works. I mean, it, it's definitely a great promoter for workshops and, and other events because it's free. You're not mailing everything out. You know, although there's a time when the mailing is important, especially if you're pushing a product of, of paper and press and things like that, that are real. But it is horribly ironic. I know to say that you don't mail paper out as right. a paper conservatory. Yes. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I've seen it develop and, um, We've got a pretty decent handle. We we use the major, most of the major platforms that everybody does. We have somebody doing social media and and working the website to post things on the website. So it's another part of that end of the staff that you have to kind of do. And I'm glad I don't have to do the posting and that. I, you know, but it's they're very facile at it, and that helps. But it keeps you relevant, and especially in this day and age, it's without people coming in the doors, it's been, you know, and we're trying to do more virtual stuff right now. We've got some virtual classes coming up. We've done some virtual interviews and, you know, I would like to get to a point of really highlighting all the types of people that have come through the Morgan, not just instructors, but uh, volunteers, people that 
been on the board, people like yourselves that were there when we first started and give us a perspective and where you're at now with what you're doing, you know, and just have this five, maybe to 10, 15 minutes of here's a Morganite in some respects. <laughs> he has come through our doors and Oddly enough, I'm actually probably working more with paper now than I ever have in my entire career. That's great. Just yeah. without without anything or with? Uh... No, I do. Uh, these days I'm doing like where I take my photograph and then I'll uh, decoupage layers and layers of, of Japanese tissue papers and, and cause no, uh, different levels to come through. Yeah, yeah, and com completely different sort of transparencies and and textural qualities and stuff like this. So yeah, I actually am working a lot with the physicality and the materiality of paper itself. Probably yeah. more so now than I ever have. So, well, this would be a good time for you to <laughs> look into a residency some point. It probably uh, would be now that I think about it. Yeah, because I mean, making Eastern as well as Western style papers that have a lot of uh, we're doing a lot. We get a lot of calls for translucent papers and, and the Asian papers. So both Western and Eastern, which allow you to do that kind of uh, work and layer. And uh, I'm all for it. When, when's your next deadline for applications? I don't think we're accepting any this year because what we did is put our artists and residents off from last year. What we may do is we're talking about it right now is to allow for people to apply and say, you were only going to have three or four slots open, depending on, you know, like if people can't come from Chile and that, but so we'll probably will open it up for some folks, uh, a few more folks, but uh, a lot of the people are, are dying to complete the residency they were going to do this year, next year. So, you know, so that ultimately the following year will be, and I think it's before December 1st, I think is a deadline. It's on our website the deadline I, I never can remember because we have intern deadlines we have artists and residents deadlines and things like that but we'd love to have you apply even this year to apply and have it in there and say i don't know if we'll sele select and say well next year plan on coming but it would be an ideal thing for you working being able to create a variety of thicknesses of papers and uh, different fibers and that and adding actually embedding things at that point too, when they're wet. Absolutely. A different way of locking them in. Now that we've talked about this out loud, it's, it's actually absolutely perfect for me. So yes, I should absolutely apply. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last little bit. Um, sure. So from your experiences, so like, let's take your whole career as a thing. What would be some advice you would give people that are up and coming? So like it could be as an artist yourself or it could be as a nonprofit uh, director, like what just some uh, some things, because part of the idea of the podcast is, is that I feel like things are changing so quickly and things are being becoming different so quickly in the arts world in general, we're not able to sort of keep up with like how to do it successfully, right. you know, put that in air quotes successfully. So, you know, what kind of experiences have you had that you think are good advice for the next generation so that they don't have to go through some of the trials and travails that we had to go through in our generation? Yeah. And I actually believe that they probably have more trials and tribulations, especially people wanting to do art in this day and age, because Everybody has a camera. Everybody is able to, enter, you know, it's all instant. Everything is instant. And I, I, I'm glad I grew up in the time I grew up in and I had the facilities and the wherewithal from advice and people that guided me along. And I would say, you know, you've, it's got to be in your blood to, to do art and to continue doing it some, some way or other. Uh, there are a lot of people that go in and out of it, but I was fortunate enough that it was the right thing for me and I'm compulsive enough and dedicated enough that you put, you've got to put in a lot of hours. It's not something you do when you feel like doing it. There's lots of times you don't want to do it or you, the only way to work through, you know, bad times when you like don't have ideas is to do something and work through it or think through it somehow or, or play around with some other technique or do something to motivate. So uh, just, would advise folks to take advantage as much as possible of whatever facilities they're using in art schools or places like the Morgan and take advantage of that 
utilize it, dedicate, you know, a real work work ethic to it and utilize it in respect to your creative side, you know, to, to push, I would definitely dissuade anybody from starting a nonprofit. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Me too. It's, it, and, and they've gone, you know, where they were really, you know, when places like Haystack and Pendlin were going, that was ideal times and they've gone a long way and they're great, but it's to try and do a startup, even like the Morgan now or anything like that. It's tough times. So I would rather see a consolidation of several organizations under one heading or sharing staff and things like that so that they can actually afford more to the employees and also allow a, a greater vastness of facility use and materials, et cetera. I mean, I, I'm fortunate, you know, part of it, is, a lot of it is luck. There's great people with lots of talent out there that get are lost in the, in the shuffle. And it's just how things happen and, and take advantage of situations and, and also go down don't be afraid to, to be told no, and don't, don't get upset when you're not in a show or your grant isn't approved or, you know, you as an individual or anything that you've got to learn to take the, the, the knocks. And I, and I have a, a great sense of, I never have expected anything and things have come my way. So I live with, you know, it's kind of no expectations. And then if something happens, you're thrilled about it, but you don't, you know, don't divest all that energy into something and say, Oh God, I, I can't go on anymore because I didn't get this or get that. And through my career, I did a lot of things like production vessels for a township that, you know, where you'd stamp a bit, you know, it wasn't the most exciting work, but you, you have to do a lot of grudgery work sometimes, you know, you have to take on some side jobs, side projects that you may not love to do, but it all helps at least in the discipline of your giving you the time and knowing that as you age, the, the time is more and more precious. And then the last thing I would say, don't collect things. <laughs> no, I'm teasing because I, I have a, about a 30,000 square foot studio filled to the brim with equipment and art and oddball things that, you know. Is that just your personal studio or is that the Morgan? No, that's my personal studio. So. That is huge. Well, I have several floors, but I also have, I think I have five floors, uh, four of which I have living quarters and I put people up on all those floors. So just a block away from the Morgan. So that's been, that's a bit to maintain. And, and I'm finding it, the best thing about COVID is that I've been able to utilize it a little more, <laughs> you know, than just having it. And, but I also utilize the Morgan myself and do some artwork there, which has been great. There's some, I've enjoyed it as kind of a second studio for myself and worked with people. And it's been a, a lifeblood for me in that respect. And to see where, where it's gone to, I'm extremely proud, but believe me, it's not because of me. It's because of a lot of folks that have put in a lot of effort and time, both staff, board, volunteers that have kept this thing going. I always get the credit for it, and it's not something I deserve the credit for. I, I had the stupid idea of doing it, and everyone else is sort of, let's help. Let's let's you know make it a dream, and it's 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 become you know wonderful thing. I hope it lasts. I hope I at this point we've we've kept our endowment almost at where we started with, and we've been able to improve the building, and it comes with a lot of costs and. You know, we've been able to get staff. We've been able to get a little bit of hospitalization for staff, you know, not full-time hospitalization, but all that stuff is. Okay. Wait, that sounded like you put them in the hospital. You mean healthcare. Healthcare. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> hospitalization. <good. laughs> You're right. <laughs> you know, we've been putting a lot of people in the hospital. At the yeah, I mean, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's just to, but to offer, you know, be able to offer, you know, staff uh, some help with their healthcare and to offer some paid vacation time, things like that. Those are things early on we couldn't afford to do that, even with, you know, our operating budget and, and some endowment money you, and grant money. 
I have a friend of mine who's a commercial graphic designer and he's been working for the same design firm for 15 years and he still doesn't have healthcare. Yeah. So I, you know, those are things I would love to improve on. It'd be nice, uh, obviously to, to raise salaries as you can, but you know, we're at a, we're at a point of looking at, whoa, you know, our budget, you know, our, our money coming in from workshops, from even being able to throw events is, trickled you know so there's and it will take another year to probably get back to anything normal regardless of you know, who's out there i don't know where we're all heading with uh, nonprofits. you know that's why i feel consolidation may be the next step you know it's just another blow to visual artists but it's a real blow to obviously performing artists i mean it's a killer oh yes certainly you, you know I, I my heart goes out to everybody especially in the performing arts uh, that are dealing with this. Uh, and obviously people that have restaurants and, you know, where you, you need a lot of people <laughs> to survive. Yeah, we can pivot a little easier as visual artists. Not a lot easier, but a little no. easier for sure. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Well, Matt, it's been a pleasure, and I'll look for your application soon. <laughs> so.